Welcome to the latest instalment in this series of Close Readings. We've called this series The Long and Short, and in it we're considering a selection of long poems and short stories from the last 170 years or so, drawing on the rich archive of reviews, essays, and other things that have been published over the years in the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry, and I'm a tutor in English literature at Balliol College in Oxford, and I'm talking to Mark Ford, poet, critic, and professor of English at University College London. And our topic today is a poet, Alice Oswald, whose two long poems, Dart and Memorial, appeared in 2002 and 2011. And Mark, this is a bit of a first for us in this series, isn't it? Because we're talking about a contemporary, we're talking about a living poet. So any um, thoughts we might have about the place that these long poems have in her oeuvre, those are going to have to be fairly provisional sorts of judgments. Yes, she has written sort of long-ish poems since that take up sort of half or three quarters of a book. But these ones are particularly interesting to put together, I suppose, because they foreground the two aspects that are so important to sort of Oswald's tradition. One, the kind of pastoral, you might call it, the imbrication of her poems with English landscapes or riverscapes in the case of Dart and the other her training as a classicist she studied classics at Oxford and she's actually said isn't that right that that all her poetry comes out of Homer in particular of the, the Iliad that's right um, and so Memorial which is a, an excavation as she calls it of one might call them vignettes from the Iliad um, foregrounds her classical training. But it's interesting to put them together because they both, I think, connect to lots of interesting aspects of, of national poetry. To some extent, I think they're both can almost be classified as epics. Yes, epics of England of one kind or another, um, even though one is <laughs> obviously of ancient Greece. Well, let's start with Dart, shall we? Um, one of the interesting pieces about Oswald published in um, the LRB is by Colin Burrow, and he makes the point that, as it were, the home ground of Oswald's imagination are very poised, sort of suspended, sometimes wrapped moments of concentration or, or odd kind of phenomena of that kind. He calls them moments of arrest in time. And her very first book, which came out in 1996, a book called The Thing in the Gapstone Style, absolutely exemplifies what he's saying there. She's a beautiful poet of moments, and moments especially within an imaginative space of woods and leaves and the moon and reflections on the water and cobwebs and the fragility of cobwebs and things like that. So the great challenge in Dart, I suppose, is how you make a long poem out of a gift that seems so well suited to very short poems. Yes, I mean, and she uses the by now hallowed tradition of collage, modernist collage, that the poem is, although committed to kind of flowing in the most kind of performative of ways, that it, its entire trajectory is the flowing of the dart from its sources in Dartmoor down to its delta in Dartmouth. So that's the narrative, though it's not really a narrative of the poem, that's its flow. But she does it through collaging different voices, different scenarios, different vignettes of people's lives, rather in the manner, obviously, of The Wasteland was the first poem that did that most famously. But things like Brig Flats by Basil Bunting or uh, Geoffrey Hill's Mercian Hymns mm. are quite close to Oswald's commitment to some kind of sense of an architectural layering of of the riverscape and creating a sense of it through history, going back to the tin miners, even going back to the arrival of Brute, the grandson of Aeneas at Totnes. Mm. Now, I think that's probably not historical truth, 
but uh, she does include him. So there's a sense in which the poem is a national epic in that this founder, Britain, might come from. Well, it obviously doesn't, but this idea of Brutus connects Troy to England, and that was actually quite important in the 18th century, for instance. And I think it goes back to Lacamoon's Brute um, mm. from, I won't say which century, but maybe the 12th. The sense of polyphony that you're referring to is a very important part of the poem, isn't it? Her her voice is highly distinctive and her, her presence within the poem is extremely personal. But at the same time, one of the great strengths of Dart, it seems to me, is that the scope of the poem is quite as much almost sociological as it is a private lyrical consciousness on show. And absolutely, the poetic precursors that you've mentioned there are all absolutely germane, but it's also got a kind of interest, almost like a mass observation project, hasn't it? Absolutely. That the documentary thing is really interesting, mm. isn't it? And so we don't just get tales of canoeists and swimmers. We get the tales of a woollen mill, somebody who works in a woollen mill, or a chambermaid who works in a, in a and b uh, on the dart, and also a sewage worker. I mean, mm. sewage workers, obviously one of the, as well as Bunting and Hill, Ted Hughes is obviously really fundamental to Oswald's vision of Englishness, but also her vision of poetry and poetry's relationship to segments of the English land and river. I I hesitate to call her a landscape or riverscape poetry because she doesn't like the idea of nature poetry. Hers is much more a sort of panoptic or holistic or Mm. kind of all-surrounding experience of nature rather than a kind of perspectively driven interpretation of nature. She wants its voices to surround us, its textures, its feelings, its smells, the whole changing process to be somehow going on in the poem and we sort of dip into it as you might dip into the dart itself and experience it. Yes, so all the voices we hear, although they are characterised helpfully by marginal notes often, but all the voices she makes clear in her prefatory note are are really the voice of the river. So the river becomes a sort of underlying, organising metaphor of, well, being with a capital B, really, isn't it, that gathers together all of these different vocal contributions to the texture of the poem. And those those different voices are brilliantly um, undiscriminated into normal kinds of categories, aren't they? So you're right, we do get naturalists and divers and fishermen. We get some good poachers. So she shares with Ted Hughes a particular interest in poaching. And we get naval cadets. But we also get water nymphs mm-hmm. and ancient kings of the oak woods pop into it. And that kind of deliberate conflation of very different sorts of literary experience is a very striking aspect of the poem, I think. Yes, I mean, she quotes a bit from Michael Drayton's Polyolbion of 1612, which is a kind of epic history of of the rivers of England. And he does have a passage on the dart and she makes uh, use of that. And and she quotes a couple of the names which uh, he uses, um, Simene and Samaya and so on. So this sense of the genius loci, or should be the in the feminine, genial loci, the nymph spirit of the place. And I think this is somewhere where it does interestingly connect with a poem we've looked at earlier, Hart Crane's mm. The Bridge, mm. which also has a section called The River um, and which also has marginal notes telling us what's going on, so to speak, and is also a kind of attempt to create an architectural or excavatory epic going back through history as a way of interpreting or representing the present, the way that the past can be experienced in the present. And yes, her classicism comes in. And that's why I think the Brutus thing is important, Mm. that she is in that encoding kind of the the Roman presence in Britain, as well as all the later presences, the tin miners and so on. 
and the pre-existence of, of rivers as well in English poetry, apart from Polyolbion, is important, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a river that um, structures Wordsworth's great autobiographical epic, The Prelude. It's a sacred river that runs all the way through Coleridge's Kubla Khan. Coleridge, as a contributor to the LRB called Angel Clare, points out Coleridge was intending to write a poem called The Brook, which was going to be all about a poem that rose in his own home county of Devon. So it would have, um, as it were, been a real precursor to Oswald's poem had that ever come into existence. So these are extraordinary images of continuity and uh, development, a kind of a natural emblem of something beginning with something very small and before ending up in the vastness and uh, oblivion of the ocean. And I guess that's also uh, one of the underlying metaphorical uh, arrangements or orchestrations in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, too. There the river is the Thames, but it's a similar kind of uh, use of the river as a way of amalgamating and organising disparate sorts of experience. Yes, and what's interesting when you compare it with such as Coleridge or Eliot is the lack of a, a clear perspective on it, that there's no satire in it, there's no judgment going on it. There is this really rather panoptic almost shamanistic concept of poetry as something which is able to collage all these things together without making any interpretation of them or deriving particular meanings from them. And one can read it as an eco-poem if one wants to. And she was very interested in site-specific artwork. She actually was a gardener for Ian Hamilton Finlay up in Scotland for a while and she's interested in Roger Deakin and the whole of the ways in which poetry and writing has attempted to represent the state of the, I hesitate to use the words countryside as well, because that sounds rather national trusty, but the state of the nation's fields and rivers and, and coasts and so on at any one point. So she does want to include all that without actually creating an explanation of it or generalising. Like Ted Hughes, she sees generalisations as the kind of enemy, as the devil almost. Yep. And the whole point is to recreate the experience. And I think the poem actually has its source in terms of its opening question in Hughes's Woodwoe. Um, Woodwoe is this kind of weird creature that you meet in um, Gawain and the Green Knight and uh, who's not really identified. And his poem starts, What am I, nosing here, turning leaves over, following a faint stain on the air to the river's edge, I enter water. Mm. Uh, and hers starts with a similar question, which is, we learn a, a hiker, um, who's this moving alive over the moor? That question, you don't know exactly who or what this is. And it's that non-interpretation which seems to be a portal for Oswald to get her poetry going. We should say, shouldn't we, that her ability to write haunting water poetry, water effects, is extraordinary, I think. Every page has, has one of these moments of, of extraordinary sort of liquid magic. This dreaming of the dart that sinks like a feather falls, not quite in full possession of its weight, she talks about at one point. And, and in one of the interviews that she gave to the Poetry Review, I think it was, she said that the importance of water to her was that it taught her something more globally important about what she calls unfixity. And that there is an extraordinary kind of parallel, isn't there, between the fluidity of the subject matter of the poem and the fluidity of her own kind of lyric gift. Thanks for listening to this extract from The Long and Short, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description.